Okay, we were briefly interrupted, but it was no problem. I was talking about how certain ideals had come into Russia and eroded the control of the government there. What was happening at this time around, right before the Tiananmen Square incident, was that particularly intellectuals had become very enamored with Western ideals. And were, there was a lot of movement and a lot of upcurrent pushing towards allowing more free speech, allowing more democracy. And at this time, the control of the government in, in China wasn't as strict. There was definitely propaganda and it was definitely strict, but it wasn't like how it is now. So there was a, a divide in the government administration. A lot of the CCP members wanted more strict control. They wanted a very harsh reaction to these upwells of, of students. I forget his name, but the leader at the time, the president at the time, held his hand for a while. And then the Tiananmen Square um, protests started. And he wanted to allow them to keep going. He didn't want to stop them with military force, but his other party members eventually coerced him into it or so the story goes. And then you had, you know, the deaths and, and injuries of thousands of Tiananmen Square uh, protesters who were students and professors. And after that incident, overnight, the, the attitude of the Chinese government changed and it became very, very aggressive and tight. And that's when all of these things started happening. That's when the Great Firewall started being put together. That's when the, associate, the Students Association started in the West and then was co-opted by the Chinese government later on throughout the 90s. So all of this kind of ties back to China almost lost its footing. It almost started to crumble and it almost started to open up. But what they did is instead of letting it happen... At the they, point in time where the USSR failed to crack down and so the Iron Curtain came down, the Chinese chose the opposite direction and they did crack down as well. I mean, the USSR had two options. They could go full 1984 because up to that point it had, it had just been the brutality of if you're caught with subversive materials, quote unquote, or spreading subversive ideals, we'll just kill you or send you to Siberia. There wasn't really this surgical psyop, mini true Orwell thing that you have going on in China. It never developed because before it could, the Berlin Wall fell down. Mm -hmm. And now, as a matter of fact, I mean, you see this with Putin. The great, the great dirty little secret of the Western world is the Cold War never ended and the USSR never went anywhere. They just kind of streamlined their operations. Eastern Europe became free and it became Russia in one state, the Russian Federation. And now they figured out that instead of brute military force and we're going to forcibly spread communism everywhere, if we just kind of rock back on our heels and we leverage our energy resources and our political influence in Europe, we can grow very, 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 very rich and we can still subvert the Westerners as much as we want to and we don't have to go to the trouble of fighting expensive proxy wars and mm -hmm. wars of spies. So China is really is and is on the road to being more so something the world's never seen before. And I don't think it's it's a good idea to just assume well it'll fizzle out eventually. I I don't think they'll allow themselves to just fizzle out eventually. Um 
before we transition to another topic, I did want to name, here are some sensitive topics that are considered spiritual pollution, in quotations, by the Chinese government. And these are topics that are filtered from foreign websites, so you can't access any website that has anything to do with these topics. The names of any Chinese government leaders, anything about political movements or protests, anything about Falun Gong and cults, these are associated together. Um, and Falun Gong is the founder of the religion, or he's a leader of the religion currently, which um, ended up... I thought Falun Gong was the name of the movement. Oh, it might have been, but I, I believe one of the leaders was named something similar. But it, I may I was reading a lot, so I probably got it all twisted up. But anyway, that's the same religious movement that spawned the Epoch Times eventually. Um, the Tiananmen Square Massacre and other ethnic issues, such as the Uyghurs. Yeah, I think even that is is uh is censored inside of China. Um the anything to do with the Xinjiang internment camps, which is where the Uyghurs are being held, which is a, a Muslim um minority group of about ten million citizens in the Xinjiang the Xinjiang uh province. And anything about Tibetan independence is blocked. All of those subjects, if you live in China, you have zero access to anything that contains those. Um, and also, China has one quarter of the global internet population. So internet connections, China has one quarter of them, which equals 700 million people. So... Essentially, one quarter of the people who would be on the internet are gone. They're not there. They're sequestered into this Chinese firewall. And imagine how much of an input that would have onto our internet and our culture and well, things like so that. Well, they're so cut off, they have no way to run. But can you imagine if people in their government and in the public and in the world of business who wanted to defect, if they could get out and they could blow the whistle on things, the Chinese mm -hmm. government, like the Uyghurs or coronavirus, the Chinese government went DEFCON 1 on, on both of those. We just mm -hmm. don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge that it exists. As far as we're concerned, it is not happening, never happened. So... And those are things that just necessarily the Chinese government couldn't hide. A, a pandemic and satellite images of concentration camps being built. And informants who are willing to risk their lives. So can you imagine if, if people could talk and would talk in China, the number of things that would come out that we don't even know about? And I think that's really the diabolical situation of this idea of the firewall and of internet censorship in China, is that it's purposeful, it's intense, and... It's um it's calculated. And so it's not even just that you have the Chinese people and they all have their social media and they're just not allowed to type certain words. It goes further than that. The internet there can be splintered into groups and so they can separate political groups and keep them from interacting with one another. So they're essentially put kind of like how in the in the United States on our internet we have echo chambers where people will get stuck and they only hear opinions that are like their own by their own choosing. By their own choosing, the same thing happens in China but by the choosing of the government and the internet service providers. So that if you may be put into a, a certain category which then blocks you from interacting with another religion for instance, so that you kind of feel as if 
you are the only one who has these thoughts and you can only see other people that have the same thoughts. So anything that might lead towards rebelling or lead towards a different philosophy or some kind of scientific issue that you shouldn't think or talk about, you can't even access that because those people have been sequestered and are currently being dealt with, you know? So it's, it's a very, it's more than dystopian because it's real. It's, um, it's, it's almost worse than the books, you know, it's worse than Brave New World. It's worse than 1984 because it's not just fantasy and fiction. It's something that actually happened. And not only has it happened, it's currently working. It's effective. Now, should we talk about the deep pit rabbit hole of the Epoch Times and that whole situation? Yeah, I'd like to know everything that you know about that because I only glossed over it. But I, I did read the Wikipedia page about the them being the second um, largest funder of Trump's campaign other than Trump himself is is crazy. They were in that same period of time as you talked about the Tiananmen Square protest. There was a big government crackdown after Tiananmen Square. And leading up to that point as part of the government kind of staying its hand against whatever unfolded socially in China, a big part of that was the development of many, 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 many new religious groups generally surrounding certain precepts of um, meditation, similar kinds of tradi neo-traditional Chinese views of uh, spirituality in the afterlife, and I believe ancestor worship maybe, or a form of ancestor worship. And when the government began to crack down on these religious groups, which because the environment was so thawed, a lot of people did, and they started really brutally persecuting these religious groups. And Falun Gong was one of them. And the founder went into self-preservatory exile here in the United States. And he and a bunch of other people live on a huge compound up north somewhere. I'm not sure which in state. In New York. In New York. Mm -hmm. Upstate New York. A huge compound in upstate New York. Uh and they own, as one of their subsidiaries, the Epoch Times newspaper. Now, and as Bren said, they're the second largest funder after Trump himself of his own ads mm -hmm. for his political And they campaign. were banned by Facebook from advertising, period, because Facebook didn't... I'm not going to justify or not justify that, but Facebook said that they were committing fraud with their advertisements and tricking people into signing up for certain services and things like that. But they had a significant enough pull that they got banned from Facebook, which is kind of an extraordinary feat in its own well, right. Well, they have a their core, as I understand it, because they're not a very open, they're a very secretive organization. Well, they don't disclose where they get their money from, that's for sure, and they have a lot of it. And <clears throat> they brutally hate China. These are Chinese people, people who have ethnic Chinese people who have left China and come to the United States as part of this movement. They hate the Communist Party of China bitterly. They didn't love Trump. Don't make that mistake. They didn't love Trump. They just hate China that bad. And they felt like once he got in the executive seat, he would put a, a hard beating on China. And I mean, he he put the most pressure on China so far out of any administration for sure. 
I've lived through now two major Democratic presidents, President Clinton and President Obama. And I was alive, obviously, through George W. Bush all eight years. And I've, I mean, all that while the rhetoric on the, the growing influence of China has been the same. Trump is the only president I've ever seen who just full on no sugar coating, no under the table, no we'll deal with it later, just straight up tried to bruise their head and heels every way he could. And I can't escape the conclusion that a lot of that, some of that was probably his own political persuasion. But if your second biggest funding partner and most, you know, financially, whenever you need help, they're right there is a group of people who who want you, who don't think there's anything you can do to China that China doesn't deserve. I can't help but think a lot of that had to do with campaign promises. Mm. But, um, so, um, this, the Epoch Times, do you know, like, have they released like any, are, are they a political group or are they like a subterfuge group? Like, are they, are they openly saying like, these are the things we want to do to China or are they just like an information conglomerate, like, uh, putting out propaganda? Because I haven't, I haven't seen anyone speak from them. I just see their newspaper and I see the things they've done with campaigns, but I didn't see any like footage of like the leader of the Epoch Times or something like that. Very, very closed off. Almost Scientology-esque is my perception. Not in the sense that I'm accusing them of taking people to secret bases in the desert and beating them or anything. Well, the the QAnon the Q stuff that they're associated with was interesting. I don't know how much you know about QAnon, but I know a little bit. I studied it a little bit when it first emerged, and I was like, this is going to lead me into just re- oceans of stupidity. I'd better leave it alone. There's a good documentary I know. Um, I don't remember the name, but I think it might be on Netflix. Um, I never paid a, a visit to the QAnon shaman. They do a deep dive into QAnon and basically try to figure out who the leader of it was because it was a man or it was someone, an anonymous someone, potentially many anonymous someones who were posting on 4chan, dropping um, predictions and bits of information and leading basically a, a trail of breadcrumbs of which there was supposed to be some revelation that would expose what was going on in the government that was leading up to. And, and basically the idea was that Trump was, had someone on the inside with Trump was divulging state secrets to these people on anonymous forums. And so it was kind of like this conspiracy theory trail that people were going down, ex- expecting at any moment for there to be some kind of political revolution or political uprising when Q, when Q finally revealed themselves and finally said, and they, and they took down the, you know, the leftist leaders. It was At it one was, point they said that Trump was preparing, had been secretly preparing a massive raid to expose a massive international right. pedophile ring. And Things they said, like that. They, they said that the Epstein thing was the beginning of that. Like he was, American law enforcement under Trump's leadership was about to break up the global some massive global conspiracy for pedophilia and the that sexual would be a exploitation good, of that children. That would be a good, uh, another kind of deep dive topic for us is to really get to the bottom of of that QAnon stuff. I, I kind of like stuff like that, but what it shows to me is that this group of people, the Epoch Times, they, um, 
it makes me question their judgment. Because if I were wanting to take down China in whatever way I could, I would align myself with things that were more mainstream, more, I would, I would say sensible, more like actual things, not propaganda. Because you don't have to propagandize to get people to not like what the Chinese government is doing. You, don't, you just have to tell what's happening, like what we're doing. We're not propagandizing. We're just stating what we've found in articles and research and, and journalism. And it's, it's perfectly enough evidence to damn them. But with something like the Epoch Times, to me, that seems something like more akin to, like you were saying, almost religious fervor, like a, 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 a kind of, what'd you say, like a, a rabid, like a fanaticism. Yeah, fanaticism, a kind of, you know, foaming at the mouth, trying to just bite whatever they Well, can. if you think about it, sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. It wasn't enough. We were talking about it just a few seconds ago, it seems like. The Chinese tried the whole don't do anything extreme, just spread propaganda. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't enough to keep Western ideals out of their country. Right. They had to shut down the entire information. They had to take over. It had to become a very Orwellian, mini-true situation. You're going to fight fire with fire. You're dealing with a group of people who saw the transformation of the Chinese government and experienced the persecution firsthand. It's one thing to let people know about people doing evil things. It's another thing to compel them to do something about it. All that conspiracy theory may just be their way of utilizing the Chinese government's weapons for their own purposes. The fact that they haven't disclosed who their donors are worries me. Uh, The journalist that I saw from the article that was cited in Wikipedia essentially said that the only information anyone's ever gotten out of them is that it's through donations from wealthy members of the religion. And I mean, if you, if, if that's your source of income, that could literally be anyone. I mean, if you're part of a secret society. Well, it occurred to me because I, I read their stuff when they output stuff. I'll read what they write just mm-hmm. to see. And it's occurred to me that, okay, you're a scorn religious group. Your founder and a lot of your leading members had public exposure. So the Chinese government knew who they were to the point that they had to leave and come here and build a massive secure complex in upstate New York to avoid being killed or kidnapped or extradited back to China. But let's assume you had some high-end people who were part of your religion who were on the inside of the party or who had major business interest in China and it wasn't known that they were part of your religion, if you could keep open channels of communication with them, they could feed you information from the inside and they could possibly also arrange their finances so you could make money off of them. So it may be that those donations are coming, the reason they're so secretive is that those donations are coming from people within China who can't admit that they're part of it. Right. That would make sense. I haven't seen anything to suggest that, and I'm not saying anyone should accept it. But, I mean, hell, it, it's so weird. It could be a Chinese psyop. That's what I thought, too. When I first saw it, I was like, this seems more like like the Chinese government themselves are kind of propping up like, oh, this is our competition. This is the detractor. 
you know, is this crazed, rabid publication. It's easy to discredit. And they can use it as a tool in that way. But sometimes it really is just as simple as there's fanatic there's a fanatic religion out there that hates China. I mean that makes that perfectly makes sense. Um there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. And and it's the it's not even necessarily about the genocide happening to the the Uyghur population in uh, West China. Because I feel like that's actually been covered in the news quite a bit. But it's the tactics they're using um, that you mentioned earlier about them turning into a kind of Orwellian state, which they literally have. I mean, they do have the social credit score. They are tracking citizens based upon their political views and their ideologies. But specifically in this case with the Uyghurs, um, there's 12 million um, Uyghurs, which is a cultural minority who's mostly Muslim in northwestern China. Um, but what's interesting is that in they see the Chinese government sees this group of people as an enemy of the state and as rebellious. They consider them a terrorist organization just by being affiliated with a racial group. They you're considered a, a terrorist and an enemy That's of the like state. The, that would be like the U.S. government saying that Protestants were terrorists. Right. Millions of people, all, all concentrated in one area, conveniently. Um, there's actually been a huge mass migration of um, what you... The, the, the majority of Chinese belong to what's called the Han Chinese, which is a, a large majority. Um, I think even close to like 70 or 80% of China is, is Han um, but they've been purposefully over the last decade or so migrating Han Chinese workers to, um, this area of China called, um, Xinjiang. And not only that, but they've also, this area of China currently has one of the most pervasive, I would call it a spy network. So what they've done is they essentially they've set up police checkpoints all over the province. They have installed cameras all along the streets, and all of these cameras they're they're pretty high tech. They have facial recognition software. They have the cameras are good enough, and the software is good enough that they can tag cars and identification plates on vehicles. Um, but they're also monitoring people's behavior like their whereabouts, where they work, their patterns of travel, and also their electricity usage and even things like that. Um, I guess what they're trying to do is kind of profile these people and figure out exactly how they can pin each and every one until they're all gone. And like I was mentioning earlier with the, um, there's been a lot of forced uh, contraceptive use. I mean, they've essentially what they've done is they built these labor camps, which can house hundreds of thousands to potentially millions of people. And these labor camps are mostly producing cotton. And this is actually, this territory is the largest producer of cotton in the world. Um, By that, do you mean they're making textiles out of raw cotton? Yeah. Well, I think they're just, they're selling raw cotton. Well, I get, yeah. Yeah. Because textiles is kind of the raw form of of clothing. Where they're basically, that's what I was saying. I would imagine they're making cotton fabric and maybe dyeing it, but. I think they're just producing just cotton. They have cotton farms, and what they're doing is processing the cotton and then shipping it out across the across China and the world. Um, 
but I lost my train of thought. You were heading into the forced contraceptive. Oh, right. The, essentially what they've done is they've, if you are the center of any kind politically, you get thrown in these labor camps. But also if you're a female, they've been processing the females and giving them forced contraceptives, injections, and inserting surgically contraceptive de- devices. And if you don't accept these, then you're arrested, they're forced onto you, and then you're thrown in the labor camp. And what they've done is in a couple of these provinces in this area, they have reduced the birth rate of this of this group of people, the Uyghurs, by up to 84%. So what they are doing is eliminating a political force which wants to be independent of China. They're eliminating them by eliminating their ability to reproduce. So they're not murdering people in the streets, but it is by all accounts a modern genocide of the most, it's almost more calculated than you would think. It's, it's more, it's worse because it's so, it's so simple. They just arrest people and they don't allow them to reproduce. And they're hoping that in the next 10 to 20 years, they'll be gone. Um, but to see what they're doing to their enemies internally, I mean, if you see a government treating its own citizens that way, even if they are a, a group that's considered separate from the mainstream culture, I think it reveals a lot about the Chinese government and their consolidation of power to be able to do something like this is very worrisome and very extreme. And so you see now that you have this front, you're talking about the economic point of views. I'm talking about the cultural point of views and the technological, the technological point of views. If you tie it all together and you see how China is sort of like an amoeba, which is stretching out into these channels all around it, economics, academia, politics, military, it's kind of burrowing in and it's like this large scale organism that's kind of anchoring itself and preparing to blossom is how I see it. And I think that what what the world is probably about to wake up to is you're going to have a huge portion of the economy being controlled by China, a huge political force, and a devastatingly large military force, all combined with a population which has essentially been co-opted and coerced into participating in this machine And I think you're going to see something blossom from this that's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. Basically, a machine capable of taking over any area that it likes. If it wants to focus its energy on academia, the willpower and the the, the mass amounts of students they will have will be able to outperform any other country. If they want to focus on military, they can dominate there. It's like a perfect, it's almost perfect. And that's what makes me wonder what, those are geese. That makes me wonder what, like, where's the fault at? Where is it going to fault? And the falter, the fault line is going to form and it's going to falter and collapse on itself. Because to support that kind of operation is something, it's, uh, it's almost miraculous what they're trying to do. And especially going back to that 90% plan where they want to have 90% of the world's goods produced in China. It's unlike anything in history, really. I 
I don't even know if there is a necessary fault line because the fault line would have to involve some kind of an internal collapse. And I'm not sure there is any, there is a possibility for any internal collapse because they've gone to great lengths to make sure that everyone alive in China now doesn't know any different or any better. And they have such an expansive network of information collection and aggregation that I don't know that any movement of rebellion or resistance would have a chance. The minute you send one email to me in China telling me you think we should talk to some other students because something being done by the university faculty is oppressive, they immediately flag us as subversives and they coerce us into shutting up and we're too afraid to say anything. Are we both getting a little tired? Yeah, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. Um, This could be parsed out and kind of take place in other podcasts over an extended period of time because it's not like there's a lack of anything to talk about with respect to China. Yeah, the last thing I, I want to say <clears throat> is that as powerful as people are, I think that's the thing that's made the Chinese government successful is they, they recognized how powerful people are when they get together and when they start having ideas and they start talking, there's nothing more powerful than a group of people who are opposed to an ideology and just won't go away. I mean, they will, they'll literally kill themselves for it because they, they find something to stand on and they say, no, this government, this organization, whatever it is, they're wrong. They're the enemy. They're the oppressor. We're done. We'll kill ourselves to get rid of you. That's, that's what humans do when they rebel. They become fanatical. China has obviously recognized this. And so, like you're saying, it almost seems impossible that you could rebel from it. But I think that's really the only thing that could happen. I mean, in China, they'll have to develop on their own a sense of democracy and a want for it, a want to overthrow the government or a want to well, change you, it. You can bet that in print, not not digital, but in print, you can bet that there are books circulating and being reprinted. There have to be. In the, on, the, on the slide, because that's part of what happened in Russia. And I, the students, they didn't forget. Those people that w watched Tiananmen Square happen, they're still alive. They didn't forget. Mm -mm. A lot of them probably still have scars from that. And you figure Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago floated around in Russia in handwritten or badly printed copies for years before it was ever able to be formally published, as a lot of his other works did. And a lot of people in the USSR fell would gladly tell you after it was all said and done that they had carried these Solzhenitsyn ideas around in their head for years, and that's what compelled them to do more and more towards the collapse of the USSR. So I think there are probably a lot of books there floating around that the Chinese government wouldn't admit it, but they can't do anything about. And that's the thing about ideas. You can't, you can't monitor ideas. You can only monitor words. So if you don't put it in the print, and if you don't put it online... You it, don't know I'm coming until I'm already there. And if you turn the cell phone off and put it in a different room, there's still plenty of room for free speech. You can never stop that. And you can, even if you stop that, you can't stop what's in your head. 
An interesting anecdote, I was listening to a, a Chinese man talk about the Great Firewall on the way here on a TED Talk. And he said that an interesting thing happens in that on these social media networks, they ban certain terms, right? Well, what these people do is they start making up new terms that are anagrams or references to banned terms. So you might have the term freedom banned, but dom free, for instance, isn't banned. So you use dom free. So you change the language and then you come up with all these different ways of referencing older ways and you just keep changing the language faster than the algorithms can keep up with, faster than the programmers can keep up with. So language can actually mutate at such a fast rate that it can preserve these freedom and democracy and all these ideals, it can preserve them in itself and not be stamped out. So it doesn't, even if you, you would have to block the entire language and if you do that, everything would come to a screeching halt. So I think there's, there's probably a lot of hope there. But I don't like how, like you said, our governments are so lax about it. They're just like, oh, it's whatever. I want to read that book, uh, Red Handed, because I think there's going to be a lot of useful information. And I just haven't thought to order it because we've been bogged down with other podcast material and school stuff and work stuff. But. Well, I think we talked about a lot today. Well, I mean, I think this is one of those everything shows up in the clear light of history. I think probably in 50 to 100 years, we'll look back and by then the number of things that will have fallen out that were going on behind the scenes that we don't, we're not able to know about right now. You know, dare I even bring it up, we discussed as I was coming in, Mitch McConnell is the Republican minority leader of the Senate. His wife, Elaine McConnell, I might add, former um, secretary of, I believe it was transportation, is part of, formerly Elaine Chow, is part of a family of Chinese origin that has been accused several times of using her position and her husband's position in American politics to steer things in favor of China. We now know that Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein made billions in, in kind of cloak-and-dagger deals on Chinese stocks and tech stocks that boomed because of policies that they directly either prevented from going into place or made sure went into place. So it's not even that they're too passive on the issue. China has greased a lot of palms in Washington, D.C. to make sure that these things don't get talked about, might less regulated. Like you said, it's, it's an entanglement of all sides, and they're dancing around to see which one will falter first. The two greatest powers this world has probably ever seen, the United Slowly States economy versus the Chinese death. economy. Slowly strangling each other to death. With hundreds of millions of people all pushing and shoving and not even realizing how they're interacting. But I would like to say on a high note, because this is a very dark territory, I would like to say... I've always been worried. Me and Brent have talked about since we were really young kids when we first met. Were we born after our time? Should we have been born in the late 1800s and been contemporaries of Freud and Jung and all these kinds of guys? 
And it occurred to me last night, in a way, we're kind, we kind of were born in that time, just in, with a different number stamped onto the year. Because if you think about it, what we're witnessing as Americans happening in China right now is no different than the Red October Revolution when Americans watched from afar as the Russian Tsardom fell into communism under Lenin. Mm-hmm. And I think... And this is another topic I'd like to talk about on a podcast about um, industrial reorganization. Because I've had this theory for some time that there wasn't an industrial revolution. The industrial revolution has kind of been a thing that happens again and again in phases since, say, the steam age or the age of sail. And so I wonder if in the same way that really now we're watching a reemergence of the industrial revolution. Are we also watching just a, are we at the beginning of another one of these boom and bust cycles of international politics where we're watching the beginnings of a massive shift in the global balance of powers so that we shouldn't feel like we're doomed. We're just kind of moving into another cycle, another scene in the same act of the same play. Well, that's what Mr. Broom always said. He would always say that history literally repeats itself not metaphorically it literally the same actors on the same stage play the same parts and have the same lines just the language changes it's just the degree to which you're aware of that and but the, the intensity the degree does, of your ignorance and the intensity seems to ramp up time after time after time probably because the technology becomes more intense and the it, everything becomes more interconnected but Things happen faster. Mm-hmm. You, you reach different points in the in the action of the play. You reach them faster. The, the, the highest note I can end this on is that the more oppressed a people are, I think I, I see. I don't think it's I don't think it's cliche and I don't I don't like how people tear down these ideas of freedom and freedom of speech and democracy. These these ideas aren't cliche. These ideas are fundamental to human psychology, I believe. These aren't just things like these aren't just ideas. And it's not that one system is comparable to another. Like there are ideals in our psychology and there are ideals in the way to to run the world. And I think we found a track, which is ideal. And I, I, I do think that the more oppressed someone is, the more their spirit deep within them craves freedom. I think it is instilled within us to have a sense of, wanting space to be yourself and to think your own thoughts and to have your own ideas and to usurp powers that that have control over you these are fundamental to human psychology oh the chinese needn't delude the chinese government needn't delude themselves into thinking they'll control those people forever no and that's when they finally falter and when they eventually people the people always win it doesn't matter how big your government is how big your well, army see that's is. what worries me and that's why i brought up earlier that the chi- the average Chinese person has reason to be doubtful of the intentions of the Western world is that my fear is when this Chinese communist p- oppressive government regime falters, will we see just the sudden blooming of a pro-democracy China where people, the government, are very willing to talk to the West and where they want to secure world peace or... 
is the next phase somehow something even more dystopian and frightening than what we have now? That's right. what scares me. And that's up to those people. That's just that's that's the strange thing is it's it's completely up to to China. It just so happens that a large amalgamation of different cultures who were forced together under one flag just so happens to have assumed the position of probably the most powerful economy ever seen in the world, probably in a lot of ways on accident and happenstance. So we'll just have to see what happened. Probably by the time we're dead, something insane will have happened in the Eastern world, something no one has ever seen before. And it's either going to be great or terrible. And with that, this is one more episode of The Last Conversation, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.